Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, cultural icon Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood had strong ties to Florida, having graduated from Rollins College. Dartmouth was very cold, and Rollins was very warm, and I just felt so much at home there. We'll discuss newspaper accounts of the Patriot Rebellion in Florida. It plays a really important part, not only in Florida's history, but really this history of the Southeast in the early history of the United States. And we'll begin a three-part series of reports on sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The PBS television series Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood ran for 33 years, helping the last of the baby boomers and subsequent generations of children deal with difficult issues including death and divorce while providing a comfortable, friendly environment. On every episode, Fred Rogers would sing the show's theme song while changing into a sweater and sneakers. After visiting with someone in his neighborhood, Rogers would take us by trolley to the neighborhood of make-believe, home of Daniel the Tiger, King Friday, Queen Sarah Saturday, and other puppet characters. In 1999, Fred Rogers was interviewed by Karen Herman for the Television Academy Foundation Archive. During the four-and-a-half-hour interview, Rogers explained that before he began his television career, he graduated from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. Went to uh, Dartmouth College, where uh, I was going to study for the diplomatic corps. And so I took romance language studies there. But all of a sudden I thought, you know, I really want to study music. And I talked with the man who was the head of the music department there, and he said, Fred, we won't have this department ready for you in the four years that you'll be here. Why don't you take a look at the place that I just came from, which is Rollins College. And so on my Easter vacation, I went down to Florida to Winter Park, and uh, there were a group of kids who met me at the airport, and they took me all around. Um, among that group was uh, Joanne Bird who later became Mrs. Rogers, <laughs> but at any rate. Uh, it was just the opposite of Dartmouth, I felt. I mean, Dartmouth was very cold, and Rollins was very warm, and I just felt so much at home there. And so the next year, I went to Rollins. I had had two years at Dartmouth, and I got one year credit at Rollins. And there, 
uh, declared a mu music major uh, in composition. Fred Rogers remembered fondly all of the music faculty at Rollins College. While at Rollins, Rogers was a member of the Winter Park Bach Festival Choir. Today, John Sinclair is a professor of music at Rollins and artistic director of the Bach Festival. Oh, I, I adored Fred. He became a, a wonderful friend, and um, he spoke wonderfully of his years with the Bach Festival Choir. Um, it influenced him musically. I know uh, at his memorial service that we did for the college, he had told me that he wanted to be sure that I had some Bach in the program, and we ended with a piece from St. John Passion and, and did the famous air in the program. And so it was influential to him, but it was his participating with us is inspirational. Uh, his wife, Joanne, uh, tells me that singing in a choir is her favorite activity because to put your small voice together with others makes it the most powerful force you can imagine. So uh, we are really proud that Fred was a member of the Bach Festival Choir and we at Rollins are proud that he's an alum um, and I'm just grateful to have been his friend. Fred Rogers majored in music composition at Rollins and minored in French. He credits his French professor with encouraging him to perform on stage, which turned out to be good preparation for his career in television. I don't think I ever wanted, though, to, to be on the stage. I'm, I'm much rather doing things in, in the background. And so I graduated from Rollins in 51 with a Bachelor of Music degree, and by then I was accepted at Western Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh. And I was supposed to go there the following fall. But I went home my senior year for a vacation in, in La Trobe, and I saw this new thing called television. And I saw people throwing pies in each other's faces. And I thought, this could be a wonderful tool for education. Why is it being used this way? And so I, I said to my parents, you know, I don't think I'll go to seminary right away. I think maybe I'll go into television. And they said, well, but you've never even seen it. And I said, well, I've seen enough of it here that uh, I'd like to try. So I applied for uh, any position that, uh, that I could have at NBC in New York, and I was accepted, probably because I had this degree in music, and they wanted an assistant to work on the music programs. So in, I think it was October 1st of 1951, I started at NBC. After a couple of years in New York, Rogers moved to Pittsburgh, where he worked on children's programs at public television station WQED. He graduated from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary and became a Presbyterian minister. Saki O'Sullivan is the Kenneth Curry Professor of Literature at Rollins College and says that Rogers was genuinely concerned about other people. Fred was a wonderful man, quiet. His wife, Joanne, is a spark plug. She was great. He would come to social events, I think mostly because Joanne liked going to them. The only times at any of the parties that I attended with him that we had good conversations was when I was having a problem with my sons. And then he became very excited 
fixed me in that laser-like look of his and began asking questions. He rarely gave answers, but he would, in the perfect Socratic method, elicit your point of view by asking the questions. Fred Rogers created Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1968, and it ran on PBS for 33 years. His musical background was evident in the program. Many accomplished musicians visited Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, leaving a lasting impression on children. Yo-Yo Ma and Van Cliburn, Itzhak Perlman, and all of these people who have so generously come and given their their talents, you know, on the neighborhood. It delights me to be able to offer that to children. And I hope they delight in receiving it. But I know a little boy in Chicago. He was four years old and he saw Yo-Yo for the first time on our program. And he said, I want to do that. Well, his parents thought, you know, that, that'll pass the next week. I want a cello. So finally, he was so insistent about it that they got him some Suzuki lessons. His mother had to learn a little bit to help him practice. She's still playing. This was six or seven years ago. She's still playing, and so is he. And that all happened because that child saw Yo-Yo loving what he was doing in front of him. Fred Rogers and his wife Joanne, who is a concert pianist, both maintained a close relationship with Rollins College, the place they met in the late 1940s. Rollins professor Saki O'Sullivan worked with Rogers at the end of the cultural icon's life. I actually got to know him best when I'd finished putting together a collection of essays by local teachers and Shakespeareans from around the world on a program that Stu Omens from UCF and I had run called Shakespeare in the Classroom. And we had an introduction by the founder of the Shakespeare Society. And I wanted a preface. And I thought, who would be better for a preface than Fred? So I asked Fred. He was very hesitant. He said, my world is children. I've never written anything for high school students. And I kept after him, and finally I used the secret weapon, Joanne, and Fred agreed to write something. And we had an essay. I was editing it, and I realized that so much of what he said was Shakespearean that I added a couple of quotes from Shakespeare, just little things when he talked about violence, lines from Macbeth, and then I sent it to him. And he got it in... November of 2002. After reviewing O'Sullivan's editions of Shakespearean dialogue to his essay, Rogers was modest about incorporating the suggestions. A couple of weeks later, his secretary called me and, using my nickname, said Saki. Fred would like to have a couple more weeks to edit this. I said, fine. It was Fred Rogers. Fine. So I knew he was going to have Christmas with his family and he is nothing if not a family man. And I knew he was the Grand Marshal of the Tournament of Roses Parade on January 1st, 2003. So I thought I'd hear from him after that. Because if Fred promised something, he did it. And sure enough, late in January, 
I received a letter from him with the edited copy. And all he had done is cross out the passages from Shakespeare that I'd added with a little note saying, Saki, this makes me look as though I know far more than I do. Please let me delete them. And of course, I deleted them. Fred Rogers wrote numerous children's books. The essay that he wrote for the book on teaching Shakespeare was his last written work, Saki O'Sullivan. What I didn't realize then was that he had been operated on for cancer in January 6th, I think it was, and he died two weeks later. Joanne later told me that since he had promised me that he would do this, he wanted to do it. So I feel extraordinarily honored having the last thing he wrote as part of that book and part of his memory. Fred Rogers received a Lifetime Achievement Emmy Award in 1997, was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 1999, and was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2002. He died in 2003 at the age of 74. I heard of somebody who was very, very famous asking somebody else, do you think I'll be remembered? Huh. I was sorry that, that he had such misgivings about that, you know? I just like to be remembered for, for being a, a compassionate human being who happened to be fortunate enough to, to be born at a time when there was this fabulous thing called television that, that could allow me to use all the talents that I'd been given. Fred Rogers' legacy endures his life was remembered in the 2018 documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and the 2019 Tom Hanks film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. <laughs> Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, most people have heard of the War of 1812, but not necessarily the Patriot Rebellion in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And, and even the War of 1812, many historians would argue, were part of the larger Napoleonic Wars. So this is really kind of a subset of a subset occurring in colonial Florida at the beginning of the 19th century. But it plays a really important part, not only in Florida's history, but really this history of the Southeast in the early history of the United States, in the beginnings of this expansionist period in America's history. And the Patriot Rebellion, in, in a nutshell, essentially was an invasion by American-backed forces 
thousands of mostly Georgians who crossed into northeast Florida, which was then a Spanish colony. This is what we call the, the second Spanish period, invaded the sovereign territory and took Amelia Island in northeast Florida. They laid siege to the city of St. Augustine. They attacked a number of smaller Spanish outposts and forts along the northern border of Florida. They invaded West Florida. They took Mobile, which was part of West Florida at the time, moved in on Pensacola. And a lot of the conflict was under the guise of protecting Georgians or Georgia property from Indian attacks, specifically from the Seminole Indians. So they qualified these attacks as being part of kind of a national defense. So in a lot of the contemporary accounts that you read, they're going after not necessarily the Spanish, but they're going after the Seminole Indians who are finding refuge within Spanish-held territory, who they feel are taking in their runaway slaves from southern plantations and are becoming part of their kinship groups, which they see as a threat at that time period. So for them, it's a legitimate threat. And these Georgians invade Florida, and it becomes what they're trying to do is a site of rebellion. That's what we call it, the Patriot Rebellion or Patriot War. What they thought is that they could waltz into East Florida. All of these Spanish citizens would support their cause, would overthrow the yoke of, of Spanish colonial power, and they would then hand over Florida to the United States. So that's why I said it was kind of supported by the U.S. government, but not directly. So they were sort of acting through several American agents, if you will. So it was a very convoluted, very complex period in Florida's history, and it involved this kind of borderlands clash of colonial powers. And again, it marks really the beginning of this expansion of American territorialism. And although the Patriot Rebellion is sometimes overlooked today, national newspapers were covering it at the time. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today is straight from the Florida Historical Society Archives and Library. And this is an original 1812-1813 compilation of the Weekly Register newspaper articles. And the Weekly Register was one of the most popular American periodicals at the time. It had a circulation of about 4,000 individuals, and it covered everything that was going on in the United States. And that, of course, included what we would now call the Patriot War or the Patriot Rebellion. And it became part of, like you said, the broad. War of 1812, but they're still reporting specifically about what's happening in Florida. Our reports start in, in 1812, and this is a uh, an article that was published in the Weekly Register September 12, 1812. And it's actually a letter from the U.S. Secretary of State to D.B. Mitchell, who was the governor of Georgia. Now, keep in mind that Georgia was a big instigator in this rebellion. They were mostly Georgia militia members who were invading Northeast Florida. And there's one paragraph in particular I'd like to read that kind of gives the, the U.S. views, at least initially. The Secretary of State says here, it is the desire of the president that you should turn your attention and direct your efforts in the first instance to a restoration of that state of things in the province, which existed before the late transactions. The executive considers it proper to restore back to the Spanish authorities Amelia Island and such other parts, if any, of East Florida as may have thus been taken from them, unquote. There's a lot of evidence that's been uncovered recently, at least, that shows that there was approval, at least, by the executive office of the president and the U.S. Congress to, they didn't want to go to war with Spain, but Spain was allied with the English. So the War of 1812 was a great reason to continue military efforts in East Florida and actually allow these militia members to take control of Amelia Island, of cities in West Florida, and then maintain a presence there throughout the war. So it was a matter of kind of covertly getting their claws into Florida without declaring outright war. And as we read through some of these articles, you can see the tone begin to change a little bit. 
we'll look at another article. Now, this is an article dated December 5th, 1812, and it's under events of the war. And it says here, quote, to the South, we have also looked with great anxiety, but we have no particulars further than that the legislature of Georgia, considering that state as an imminent danger, were about to adapt measures having perhaps for their ulterior objective, the seizure of Florida, or at least the dispersion of the hostile force. Unquote. And the words ulterior and hostile are in italics, so there's a little tongue-in-cheek there, but, but at least the, the editors of the newspaper understand that there are motivations to try and take this territory. So even though the U.S. wasn't directly involved, there was some understanding at least that that was the motivation, was that the United States really wanted to take Florida from Spanish control. Then if we fast forward a little bit, we'll look at January 23, 1813. This is another section under events of the war, and they say here, quote, the Spanish force in St. Augustine is said to consist of 400 white and 500 black troops. An attack upon it is anticipated, unquote. Now, they did attack St. Augustine in March of that year, and they actually laid siege to the city of St. Augustine. But unfortunately for the rebels, the Spanish never gave up. Now, the Castillo de San Marcos was a formidable fortress, and they didn't give it up. So they actually held on to the city. Eventually what happened is that the militias ended up moving north, a rebellion did not materialize, and the Spanish actually kept control of the colony. So by 1814, attempts at establishing a Republic of East Florida had failed. The United States Congress did not vote in favor of outwardly supporting the military effort, so it never really got off the ground. Other than a 20-year period when the British controlled Florida in the late 1700s, Florida was a Spanish territory from the 1500s, and as you pointed out, beginning with the Patriot Rebellion, that was all about to change. Yeah, that's right. That's probably the most important takeaway, at least, from the Patriot Rebellion, is that this period, as many historians, including James Cusick, who wrote a, a famous book on, on the topic called The Other War of 1812, he argues that this period really marks the beginning of the end for the Spanish. Now, it wasn't until 1819 that the United States and Spain signed the Adams-Onis Treaty, which was ratified in 1821, officially handing Florida over to the United States. But by 1814, the war had taken its toll on, on Spanish control. And that, and that includes events that were going on in Europe as well, but they just couldn't hold on to Florida. And the pressure from the United States to move into Florida was really kind of changing the tide. And you can see that even in the public opinion of national newspapers. So the age of diplomatic acquisition of territory was over, and now the U.S. public was becoming accustomed to and actually supporting these armed insurrections and these armed rebellions to try and expand the U.S. territory and control the entire eastern seaboard. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the articles from the Weekly Register that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Climate change is having a negative impact on historic sites in Florida. Levi Watson is a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. He begins our three-part series looking at sea level rise in St. Augustine. St. Augustine, the nation's oldest city, sits on the Matanzas River, 
part of Florida's intercoastal waterway. When the Spanish established the city in 1565, it was a defensible position from foreign threats. Today, St. Augustine's historic buildings and monuments face a different threat, sea level rise. One of the monuments that is in particular danger is the monument to the U.S. soldiers who died during the Dade Massacre in 1835. I sat down with Ben DiBiase, archivist at the Florida Historical Society Research Library, to talk about the Dade Massacre and the significance of the monument, which is located in the National Cemetery at the St. Francis Barracks. The Second Seminole War started in December of 1835 with the surprise attack on General Dade's column of troops that were heading from present-day Tampa to near present-day Ocala. They were attacked. Virtually everyone was killed, and it became a national and international incident. Public outcry over the incident led to the construction of a monument at the recently established National Cemetery at the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine. The Dade Massacre became really the touchstone for the Second Seminole War. It became the incident. And the soldiers, there were about 100, just over 100 soldiers who were killed at the Dade Battlefield, later termed the Dade Massacre site. And those soldiers were exhumed, their their remains were exhumed, and they were brought to St. Augustine and buried under these very large coquina pyramids. The St. Francis Barracks is located between the Matanzas River and the man-made Maria Sanchez Lake. Because of its low elevation and location between two bodies of water, St. Augustine's National Cemetery is particularly vulnerable to the effects of sea level rise. The Monument to the Soldiers of the Dades Massacre is one of the many historic monuments in St. Augustine, in danger of being lost to permanent inundation. I asked DiBiase what the Dade Monument means for us today. For most Floridians, there's a detachment from Florida's history. A lot of people who live here, even people who grew up here, native Floridians, we often don't understand the importance and the impact of the events that have occurred in our state, part of our state's history, and that certainly includes the Seminole Wars. So any kind of visible reminder of that conflict and the complexity of the Indian removal time period, 1830s, 1840s, it's vitally important. The Seminole Wars, and the Second Seminole War in particular, were crucial in shaping the image of Florida in the minds of Americans at the time, but very few physical reminders of the wars remain today. The forts that were constructed were often hastily built. They were built out of wood, and within the next few decades after the end of the war, the remaining lumber was repurposed by early pioneers, and the earthen mounds have just been grown over and covered with trees and grass and things like that, and and houses are built on top of them, some of these sites. Really, the only thing that remains are some of the names, like Fort Lauderdale, Fort Myers. The place names can trace their origin back to the Seminole Wars period. But outside of that, there's, there's very little in terms of tangible remains, save for the markers that are at the National Cemetery in St. Augustine, those pyramids, those very prominent large pyramids. That's one of the few artifacts that we can point to and say that's a direct relation to what occurred in the 1830s and 1840s. This segment is the first of a three-part series in which I look at climate change in St. Augustine. In following segments, I sit down with Charles Tingley of the St. Augustine Historical Society to talk about St. Augustine's history with storms. We know that St. Augustine was born out of a storm. And Jessica Beach, an engineer in St. Augustine's Public Works Department, to discuss how the city is working to mitigate problems related to stormwater and sea level rise. 
the hydraulics of it is challenging because we are low and flat. <laughs> and so putting all of that infrastructure in place and designing it, it's, there's definitely challenges with it. Levi Watson is a graduate student in public history at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join the conversation on Facebook, and listen to us as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Levi Watson, and our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.